0: Before we look at God's word, let us speak with him and ask for his assistance. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it is reliable and true and speaks to us even today. Two thousand years later, it is still able to give us life, able to change hearts and to change very selves to obedient servants of yourself. We pray that this morning this may indeed occur, that we, as we look at your word, may be greatly encouraged, may be be strengthened and built up in the faith and be able to go from here boldly to proclaim your gospel to others and to encourage other Christians to behave in a way that is pleasing to you. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Are you someone who likes to know how things work? Are you someone who likes to know how things work? I've always liked to know how things work, particular things. Uh, The human body from a very young age, I was very interested in hearts and how they worked and other parts of the body and so I used to look at the encyclopedia and the pictures there drawn and, and try and read and try and understand how things work. I even dabbled in trying to understand how electrical things work. So when mum would throw away a radio, I would want to pull the back off it and have a look inside and see how it worked. But of course it didn't uh, give me any sort of uh, information by pulling it off. All I saw was sort of green boards and these little things sticking off, you know, little transformers I think they are. And so after a time of of examining it, I would then destroy it, um, pull things off it and, and pull it apart. I've always liked to know how things work and even this week uh, John mentioned that down at the Bowman Street property that he will be destroying uh, a wall, he'll be taking a wall down. And I said to him, oh how will you be doing it? And Because I like to destroy things and I've never been able to destroy a wall. And he said, with a sledgehammer. And I said, oh can I take part? And, uh, and he said flatly no without even a moment's hesitation. So um, at least if you've got some more sway with John, maybe I can uh, ask you to put some pressure on him to let me take part in taking down that wall. Because I was quite interested as to how it would happen and whether I could be involved. Do you like to know how things work? I think it's a natural question, particularly when something is raised to us, something that is difficult. We want to know how. How can this be the case? And we see that this morning with uh, Nicodemus. Last week we looked at Nicodemus and how he came to Jesus that night and asked him, uh, and well Jesus spoke to him about being born again and now this week we come to verse 9. Last week we looked at verses 1 to uh, 8 of John chapter 3. We come to verse 9 and Nicodemus has been told about the Holy Spirit and the way that he causes people to be born again and Nicodemus asks the question, how can this be? He's confronted with something and so he asks the question, how can this be? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the answer to this question of how can this be? And there's two main points that I've got this morning. The first main point about how can this be is because Jesus is qualified to say that this can be. We see it in verse 11. He says, Jesus says in verse 11, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. He says that he is testifying to something that he knows. He's speaking of what he has seen. He says there though that he says we. Now commentators struggle with this and try to understand who is the we because he doesn't explain in verse 11 who the we is. I tell you the truth, we speak. And so some people suggest that he is referring to his disciples or he's referring to the Old Testament prophets, that the Old Testament prophets uh, testify to this as well. And we saw last week that Ezekiel does speak of the Holy Spirit cleansing and the Holy Spirit is involved with the new birth and so maybe it is the Old Testament prophets. Some suggest that it is uh, the Trinity, and that's quite possible as well, that he speaks on behalf of the Trinity there. Others say John the Baptist. John the Baptist had testified to who Jesus was. These are all possibilities. The one that I tend to sway towards, of course, though, is that he's talking about himself in the, in the first person plural. So instead of saying I, he says we. Just as the Queen says, we are not amused, and she's just talking about herself that she is not amused, but she says we are not amused. And we see Jesus do this at other times In, in the other Gospels. He speaks of what shall we compare the kingdom of God to? And so he speaks in the first person plural. And I think that has some weight to it because... He, he then goes into verse 12 and says, I have spoken. And so he, he goes back to first person singular there. So I do think that he's speaking on behalf of himself probably, although it is the Trinity is probably another good guess there. But I think that he's speaking for himself because he then denies that anyone else can speak in the same way that he does, particularly humans. No one else can speak with the authority that he does And he says this in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He is claiming to be different from everyone else here on earth because no one has ever gone up into heaven whereas he has come down as the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? What is this title that Jesus uses for himself? Well, he's making a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, this Son of Man is mentioned in. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel sees this vision and he says, In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority. Glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is that son of man. He is claiming to be that son of man and so therefore he is the one who has been in God's presence. He approached the ancient of days, it says there in Daniel. Jesus has been in heaven and he has come from heaven. All the other Old Testament prophets, they never went up into heaven and if they did it was through God's grace through Jesus Christ but God always came to them with his word. They never went to God. He came to them and Jesus is doing the same thing. He is coming. He is God himself and so he is in a very privileged position to be able to say, how can this be? because I said so, because I said it can be, because I am the one who has come from heaven. I am that son of man and I tell you the truth. I don't tell you lies, I don't tell you things I've made up as a person. I have come from heaven and so I have the authority then to say that this is the way it is, that you must be born again and you must be born of the Holy Spirit. So... The first answer there is that, you know, because Jesus said so. How can this be? Because I said so. And it starts to remind me of, of parents giving an answer to a child. They say, why do I have to do this? Or how can this be? And the parent says, because I said so. And they've just got to accept it. And maybe that's because the parent can't explain it to the child because it's something that is too difficult to explain. Is that the case here? That Jesus can't explain it because it is too difficult. It is something we can't understand. No, he tells us that this is something we should be able to understand because it is an earthly thing. We see it in verse 12. He says, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now some people debate about what he's saying there, that he's saying uh, about earthly things, what does earthly things represent? And I, I do strongly believe that he is speaking of what he's just spoken of, the new birth. And we might say, well, the new birth it's a heavenly thing. It's something that the Spirit does. It's something that God does. But he does it here on earth. It is an earthly reality that we must be born again and that we can be born again by the Holy Spirit here on earth. It is something that we should realise. I made that point last week. If we really examined ourselves and knew our sin for what it was, we would say we must be born again. It is something so blatantly obvious. But our sin blinds us to the obvious nature of the new birth. It is an earthly thing and it should be plain to us. It's not some heavenly thing that is beyond comprehension. It is an earthly thing and we should be able to understand it. He's not saying, because I said so and there's no other reason. He can't explain it. It's an earthly thing. We should be able to understand that we must be born again. So my first main point was that How can this be? It's because Jesus says so. And it's an earthly thing and we should be able to understand it, but it is unbelief that gets in the way. It is not a matter of the intellect. It is unbelief that gets in the way. That's what he says in verse 12. You do not believe. We should be able to understand it, but we don't believe. That's why it's a problem for us. My second main point of how can it be is because the Son of Man will be lifted up. And we see this in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So my first main point was that just because Jesus said so, but now he reveals exactly how this can be. How can we be born again? How does the Spirit have the ability to renew us, to give us the new birth? It's because the Son of Man will be lifted up. This is what we call in the, in the pharmaceutical world the mechanism of action. You take the tablet, but then what does the tablet do inside? What does it stimulate? What does it inhibit? And it's a mechanism of action. How does it exactly work? How can it, how can it function? How can it do this? And the reason is, how can the new birth come about? Because the Son of Man will be lifted up. It had to happen. That's why that little word must is in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when God was gracious to man and didn't obliterate him, send him off to hell straight away, God has had to do this. To be a just and righteous God, he had to send Jesus into the world and Jesus had to die on the cross. He must be lifted up if he is to be righteous. He can't just forgive sins and say it's okay and no pain to be dealt out because then he's an unjust God. Pain had to be dealt with. Sin had to be dealt with and the suffering. And so the Son of Man must be lifted up if the Holy Spirit is to give the new birth. So, as i said, what, uh, I've kind of already touched on this. My next uh, part of this point is that what does it mean to be lifted up? Well, of course, it's the crucifixion. How do we know that it's the crucifixion from verse 14? Well, it's a little ambiguous because that word for lifted up there is actually used most, uh, most in the, uh, by Greek writers to mean exaltation, to lift someone up, to exalt them. But John's using it here in a different sense I think and the reason we know why is because of John chapter 12. John chapter 12 verse 32, he says it again. John chapter 12 verse 32 reads, Jesus says, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And then verse 33, he said this, to show the kind of death he was going to die. What does it mean for the Son of Man to be lifted up? It means for him to be crucified. Jesus says it to show the kind of death he was going to die. He must be crucified. And then Jesus back in John chapter 3 makes the comparison there to Moses lifting up the snake in the desert. And this makes for an excellent illustration once you start to think about it start to think of the context of what happened in the, in, with the Israelites and then what this uh, means for us today as well. What happened in the Old Testament with Moses in Numbers 21, which we just read, Numbers 21? We see in the Old Testament that the Israelites sinned and this is right after God has been gracious to them. Did you notice that, that section from verses 1 to 3? They, they have people attack them And then God is gracious to them and gives them deliverance. And then they wander on. And what do they do in verse 4? But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. These people are sinning against God. And so what does God do? He punishes them by sending in the snakes. And we see that in verse 6 of Numbers 21. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. And this then leads them to ask for relief from God. It leads them back to God, to repentance. And the people in verse 7 came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us So Moses prayed for the people and then God is gracious and gives them healing from their problem, their punishment for sin, he then gives them healing. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now how is this the same as Jesus being lifted up? What parallels are there between this story in Numbers 21 of the Israelites and Jesus? Well, there's quite a few and I think it's important that that verse 14 begins with the word, well, it's two words in English, just as, just as, and we can see just as the experiences of the Israelites in the desert, we can take them over to the experiences of Jesus Christ and us today because just as the Israelites were bitten by snakes in the desert so we've all been bitten by sin. Ever since that snake in the garden led Adam and Eve astray we have all been led astray into sin and just as the snakes brought pain and writhing agony so our sin brings pain and writhing agony as well. When we truly understand our sin for what it is and guilt takes us, it can weigh us down, it can truly depress us, it can ache in our bones. Just read some of the Psalms when, where David is oppressed by his guilt and he feels his body wasting away because of the guilt of sin upon him. And then the sin has painful consequences as well. So we have the, the consequences of if we, if we damage our bodies, if we hurt the image of God that we have been given, it actually hurts when we cut ourselves and self-mutilate and things like that. Or when we uh, go about getting our daily food, it is hard work. God's punishment for sin is that it will be by the sweat of your brow that you have to gather food and gather uh, shelter and clothing. It is no longer going to be easy. Sin brings painful consequences, just as those snake bites brought painful consequences for the people of Egypt, uh, for the people, for the Israelites, the people of Israel. And just as the snakes brought death, so sin brings death. The consequences of sin is not just writhing agony here on earth for eternity; it is eventual death, and then the second death of eternity and suffering in hell. So just as those Israelites were dying, as we read in Numbers, so people die as a consequence of their sin. And just as the snakes brought the Israelites to desire to be healed, so our sin brings us to desire to be healed as well. Not everyone, but when we truly understand our sin and what it is, we desire to have it taken away. And most people at least uh, want the painful effects of sin or, or death to be taken out of the world, the suffering that is here as a consequence of sin. They want it to be taken away. We want to be healed of our sin. We want the world to be at peace and to be in love with one another. And so the sin of the world brings that desire just as the painful bites in the desert brought the people to desire to be healed as well. And just as the bronze snake was lifted up, as a snake without venom. So I think we can see, you've got to be careful about stretching these uh, comparisons, these parallels, but I think we can see that Jesus lifted up is without venom as well. He was sinless. And I think we can make a bit of a comparison there. Moses didn't lift up a, a regular snake on a pole there. He lifted up a bronze snake. And there's other parallels that some of the commentators really push about him being shiny and dependable because of bronze and this kind of thing and so Jesus is dependable as well. I think you can go too far. But I think there is something to the fact that just as the bronze snake was without venom, so just as Jesus was without sin and died there on the cross. And then just as those bitten by the snakes looked to the snake and were healed... So when we look to Christ on the cross, we are healed. People desire to be healed of their sin, the pain and suffering in this world, but they so often don't look to the answer, to Christ on the cross as the way to be healed. And just as those Israelites who looked to the bronze snake were given life, so we are given eternal life. We aren't just given healing, from our suffering and from the weight of the burden of sin upon our shoulders. It can be a very liberating experience in this life when we feel that our sins have been taken away and so we are set free. But we're not just given that in this life, we're also given eternal life. And that's a big difference between the Israelites and their life and what we get by looking at Jesus Christ rather than a bronze snake we get eternal life. And it's not just for Israelites, it's for everyone. The difference between that bronze snake, it was just for the Israelites to look at and be healed. But Jesus Christ, when we look at him on the cross, it means everyone that looks to him, every nationality can be healed. This is how we can have eternal life, by looking to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross and believing in him. He is the cure to the bite that we are all suffering from, the bite of sin that has invaded our lives. Now it may seem a bit of an odd way of receiving life but it would have also seemed odd to these Israelites. Moses goes around saying, if I put a bronze snake up and you look to it, you're going to be healed. And it would have seemed very odd to them that this is the way that God is going to heal you. But sometimes we just we, we can't know the exact mechanism. We can't know everything about it. We can't fathom it. it. It seems odd that Jesus Christ is up there on the cross and that if we look to him, he is the way that we can be healed. Sometimes we can't understand fully how something happens. This week I got a call from our preschool director, Chris the phone had uh, gone down and she said, maybe you could come over and see what you can do to try and sort it out. Uh, I don't really understand why we can't use the phone. It's a bit of a problem. So I wandered over and had a look and I turned it off at the, the wall, tried to reset it and had a look at it and then uh, I turned it back on, still wasn't working but it worked from the, uh, the internet was working. So I knew the phone line was probably okay. So I looked at the handset and the handset said that it was on- ongoing call all the time. So I tried to clear that but that didn't do anything. And I thought, oh, well, maybe the handset's broken. So I turned it over and tried to take the battery out. And I, as I was trying to take the battery out, I couldn't do it, and I'm pressing on the other side, pressing buttons, but I couldn't care less because the phone doesn't work. And I'm pushing on there, and I, I couldn't get the back off the, 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 the handset. And I turned it over, I cleared the numbers that I pressed, and it was working again. Now, I don't know how I did it, but it was working. And so everything was restored, the phone line was back on, and I didn't know how I'd done it, I knew I'd done it, but I didn't know the exact mechanism by which I'd done it and if it happens again I will try um, something along the same lines but I can't guarantee any success because I don't know how it works. But at least Jesus' death we can understand a bit more how it works than the Israelites would have been able to understand the bronze snake and how that would work because here we see at the cross someone suffering for sin and we know that we have to suffer for our sin. We know that it brings death, it brings eternal punishment in hell. And so we see up there on the cross Jesus suffering for our sin. Now some people don't agree with that. Some people don't see Jesus' death as a substitutionary death. They see that at the cross that one of the, the reasons Jesus came to die, what he's doing up there, is just God showing his love by experiencing the pain. So it's sort of like God wants to show us sympathy and so the best way that he can show us sympathy is if he understands our pain and suffering. So he came into the world to suffer on the cross so that he could understand what we're going through and so sort of be some sort of... he could show his love to us and show how how much he cares for us. And so it's not a substitutionary death, it's just God expressing his love. But that's like, you know, someone hurts themselves and you say, well, I'll chop off my hand too so I can understand what you're going through. And that doesn't do any good, does it? That just means two people are now without a hand. It just is ridiculous. Two wrongs doesn't make some sort of right there. No, we see at the cross Jesus giving a healing death. That's what this means. You can't take the the context of Numbers 21 to mean anything else. Jesus heals. He's not showing some sort of sympathy on the cross. Another example of ways that people try and understand the cross is that he's simply... uh, He's showing us there an example of how we are to suffer. That we will suffer in our lives and so we're meant to suffer contentedly and be able to endure it for God's sake just as Jesus came into the world to suffer for you know, to show us, he, he came just to show us that he can endure suffering and so we need to endure suffering as well. It wasn't actual forgiveness that he was giving, it was just he was showing us that we should suffer as well to the end just as Jesus suffered to the end. But no, the death of Jesus Christ is truly a healing death. It is a substitutionary death. There is no other way to understand it We can't fully understand it. Sometimes we can't understand how things work but we can grasp at it and that makes more sense. That is the revealed truth in scripture that it's a substitutionary death. Where we see someone suffering and dying on the cross, we know that we are meant to suffer and die and that we can believe that Jesus suffered and died for us. And so we aren't to sort of try and make something extra into the cross. That's what these Israelites did with the snake. They couldn't quite understand how the snake functioned and so they thought it had some sort of magical power. They took away God from the snake and thought that the snake, the bronze snake, had some sort of magical power. And we know this for a fact because in 2 Kings 18 verse 4 the people are worshipping it. 2 Kings 18 verse 4. This is much later on, much later on. Uh, It's been a long time since that snake was there, but they'd hung on to the thing. They'd attached some sort of magical power to it. And so Hezekiah comes along and does the right thing in verse 4 of chapter 18, 2 Kings 18 verse 4. He removed the high places, that is King Hezekiah, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made For up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. They had worshipped it as having some sort of magical power. We have to be careful about what we don't understand trying to make it reasonable and understandable to us. They thought it made sense if we believe that the bronze snake has some sort of magical power and some people they can't grasp at the cross that Jesus is paying a substitutionary death there, that he is paying for our sins, and so they try and put something else up there instead so that their minds can fathom it. In the end, we can't fully fathom the cross, but we aren't called to understand it completely. What are we called to do? Verse 15, that everyone who believes in him, John 3, verse 15, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. We are not called to fully understand it. It is an earthly thing that we can grasp at. We can understand it. It was done here on earth. The cross was here, done on earth. And we can grasp at it, but our sin so often gets in the way and so we can't fully understand it, but we're simply called to believe it. The question is, are you going to look to the Son of Man lifted on the cross? Have you looked to him? Or are you more content to run around saying, I've been bit, I've been bit. No, I won't listen to that silly answer to the way that I can be healed. Looking to a bronze snake, that's foolishness. Looking to the Son of Man, crucified 2,000 years ago, foolishness. I'm just going to wallow in my sin and, and say, poor me, poor me, there's no answer to my sin and my suffering. Look to the Son of Man. He is the one that has the healing power for us. He is the one who can give you relief from your guilt. He can help you day by day, strengthen you and empower you and he gives you eternal life. He overcomes death for you if you look to him. Have you looked to him? And if you are a Christian and you have looked to him, continue looking to him and continue exalting him. That's the the good thing about John and his ambiguous use of words. The word lift up there, it does mean exalt as well and we can exalt Jesus Christ every time we share him with others when we boldly proclaim Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ on the cross is the answer that everyone needs. He is the one and we should not be ashamed of the cross. It is Jesus' finest hour. When Jesus is suffering as a servant, that's when he is at his glorious. John uses the word glory all the time to speak of Jesus' death. He saw the death of Christ as glory. People looked at it and said, a despised criminal is there. John looks at the cross and says, glory. And we should as Christians as well. When we share our faith with others, we share the cross because it is the way of eternal life. It is the way of healing. And we can do it no matter how imperfectly and it brings great fruit because it is the cross that gives the power. We may feel incompetent at times to share the gospel with others. We may feel that the cross is kind of too difficult and maybe too harsh. That We don't want to say that people need to suffer, that people go to hell because the cross brings that thought across. And so we don't want to do that, but we have to as Christians because that is the central focus of Christianity, is the cross. And it's through us exalting him, raising him up before others, that people are saved. It's amazing how people who have done it imperfectly have had great results through church history, through just mentioning the cross and telling people to look to Jesus Christ. They don't have to come up with fine-sounding arguments and argue people into the kingdom of God. They just say, look to the cross. And there's no greater example, I think, of someone saying, look to the cross, than the conversion of Spurgeon, if I don't know if many of you know of the conversion of Spurgeon and how he was converted. Spurgeon grew up in a Christian home. He wasn't it wasn't like he grew up in a non-Christian home and felt the guilt uh, through different preachers preaching to him. No, he knew of Christianity from a young age. His grandfather was a, a well-known preacher and a great preacher. And he memorized hymns at a young age. He was paid to do it by his grandfather. Every hymn that you memorize, I'll give you so much money. He was encouraged to learn the scriptures. He heard his mother in prayer every day at family devotions. He regularly heard from a young age about Jesus Christ. But when was he converted? Who was he converted through? Well, he speaks of roughly around the age of 16. He felt the guilt of his sin upon his shoulders and he found no relief from the instruction of his parents and from his grandfather And from what he'd read, he read the Bible, he tried to understand it, he found no relief. And so it reads, uh, this is his personal account in his autobiography. He says, I was miserable. I could do scarcely anything. My heart was broken to pieces. Six months did I pray, prayed agonizingly with all my heart, and never had an answer. He felt the weight of his sin upon his shoulders. I resolved that in the town where I lived I would visit every place of worship in order to find the way of salvation. I felt I was willing to do anything if God would only forgive me. I set off, determined to visit all the chapels, and though I deeply venerate the men who occupy those pulpits now, and did so then, I am bound to say that I never heard them once fully preach the gospel." He, he says those were great, great preachers, but they never gave him the answer when he was there. At last one snowy day I found rather an obscure street and turned down a court and there was a little chapel. I wanted to go somewhere, but I did not know this street. It was the primitive Methodist chapel. I'd heard of these people from many and how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that did not matter. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they made my head ache ever so much, I did not care. So, sitting down, the service went on. But no minister came. At last, a very thin-looking man came into the pulpit. He opened the Bible and read these words, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. Just setting his eyes upon me, as if he knew me all by heart, he said, Young man, you are in trouble. Well, I was, sure enough. Says he, you will never get out of it unless you look to Christ. Then lifting his eyes, he cried as only a primitive Methodist could do. Look, look, look. I saw it once, the way of salvation. Oh, how I did leap for joy at that moment. I know not what else he said. I was so possessed with that one thought. I looked, until I could almost have looked my eyes away. And in heaven I will look on still, in my joy unspeakable. We need to look to Christ. That primitive Methodist minister there, probably a layman he, he supposes later on, it wasn't even a minister that day. The minister didn't show. This layman got up and just said, look, 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 and sort of mumbled through the rest of the sermon. He exalted Christ that day and Spurgeon was saved and many people through the work of Spurgeon were then saved. You can be an instrument for God and say look to Christ to people and they can be saved. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us that you sent your one and only Son into the world, the Son of Man, the one and only who could approach the Ancient of Days. He came into the world not to die as some sort of example for us of suffering, not sort of to sympathise with us in our suffering, but to die in our place to take our suffering upon his shoulders, to experience hell for us so that we would be healed from this fatal bite of sin that we have all had. Lord, I thank you for his death. I thank you that we can look to him today just as people looked to him when he was here on earth and believed in him. We pray that everyone here this morning has believed in him alone. They believe that his sacrifice was a sacrifice for them. And we pray that everyone here will not be afraid, may be courageous to exalt him, to tell others about the cross and to tell all the world to look to him as the one who can take away all our suffering and all our punishment in hell. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.